Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And the Indiana State Parks were presented to the Hoosier State on December 16, 1916, as a gift to celebrate 100 years of statehood. A century later, as Indiana's in its bicentennial year, the system has grown to include 32 properties and has a state park within a one-hour drive of every Hoosier. This week on Noon Edition, we're going to be talking about the history of the state parks with three people who are here in the studio with us. We have Tom Homan, who's the president of the Indiana Parks Alliance, Sandy Messner, who's the director of outreach for the Indiana Forest Alliance, and Becca Costello, a reporter for WFIU and WTIU who has visited, is visiting every state park in 2016 and blogging about her experience. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 18, uh, 1-877-285-9348. Or you can join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. So we've, uh, yeah, we just went through that bicentennial date. The statehood day was December 11th. So here we are just a few days after that. And, and uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about the state parks, but we're going to play a little clip first um, about why the parks were established. So let's start with that. Well, state parks, Indiana state parks were established really for two or three reasons. Number one, Colonel Richard Lieber, who was our founder, wanted to provide protection, conservation for important natural areas and historic features in our state. It wasn't just the natural features like what you see at Turkey Run, but it was the historic features like what you see at Spring Mill State Park. So he felt like that was important. So that's really the number one priority. The second thing was to provide places for people to get outside, relax, recuperate, reduce stress, enjoy themselves, be with family and friends, and just have time away from the world. So those really were the two reasons our state park systems were established. And we think today those are still the two primary reasons that people come and use our parks and that we want them to have the parks available. All right, that was uh, Ginger Murphy, Director of Stewardship at the State Parks. So, Tom Homan, I want to ask you about the need for the Indiana Parks Alliance. Why did you, uh, why did you decide that you wanted to get involved with that? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I'm a retired Department of Natural Resources employee, retired in 2012. And yet, when I retired, I wanted to uh, help continue to uh, support uh, uh, Department of Natural Resources and State Parks and Nature Preserves in particular. And and uh, myself and several other people got together and decided we, we really needed an organization to provide support for specifically state parks and state-owned nature preserves. Uh, and it, it, it's unfortunate, and it's, first of all, you know, it's a centennial, and, and these parks are, are fantastic, been around for 100 years, but I think people today tend to take them for granted. And so we're wanting to try to, first of all, remind people what fantastic property, uh, facilities and properties they've got there and the treasures they have there, and also to uh, uh, provide some, some advocacy to uh, government to help support them better because there's, uh, they've fallen way behind on maintenance of facilities and, and, and natural areas and stuff. And so I wanted to, to be that voice that the state employees can't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then try also to uh, do some fundraising in the private sector to help supplement state funding too. Mm-hmm. So there was a number of things and uh, uh, it's, it's, we really got started about two years ago then and uh, it's been uh, it's been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all the forests in Indiana are not in the state parks, but the yeah. Indiana For- Forest Alliance, I know you work closely with the state parks as well. Um, so, Sandy, what's your work like? Well, I'm the outreach director for the Indiana Forest Alliance. So my job is to go around the state 
And basically to let folks know what's going on in our state forest, there's been a 400% increase in logging since 2005. So this, the, the Indiana Forest Alliance is basically working on protecting as much of that land as we can. Uh, the state forests are large and contiguous, uh, even larger than the state parks for the most part. And, and that makes them really, really valuable for things like wilderness recreation and for the animals that need deep forest habitat. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit more with both of you about uh, some of the key issues you see with state parks and state forests. But I want to go, to go to Becca and talk about this adventure you've been having this year. That's what I would call it. Have you? How many parks have you been to? All 32? I've been to 15 so far. Okay. Um, so I, uh, there's, there's actually a little bit of a, so this is, this is the 100 year anniversary of the state parks. Um, they actually combined with uh, the reservoir system. So that's where we get the 32 properties. So I okay. thought for the, for the um, centennial, I'm visiting all 24 state parks. So I have nine left. Um, got a couple left to do here in December. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I grew up in Ohio visiting all of the state parks there. I went camping with my family every year. We hiked a lot. We would always see the meteor showers at the state parks. So when I moved to Indiana, I really thought, um, what, what better way to celebrate the centennial than to experience the state park system in another state? And really, Indiana has has one of the the best state park systems in the country. So, what what have you? I mean, what have you seen that's been unusual, or that you would say differs from the Ohio state parks that you saw growing up? Is there anything that you would point to? I think actually, when we heard from Ginger earlier, she mentioned that uh, Colonel Richard Lieber he he didn't want to just preserve the natural resources of Indiana, but he was also interested in some of these historical features. So one of the coolest things I've done so far this year is I visited Rose Island that's down in Charlestown State Park. It's an abandoned amusement park that the state park has, you know, come in and preserved that land and then turned it into actually one of the projects for the centennial was putting some funding into making that a very educational place for uh, students and visitors to come in. So I think I think the most interesting thing to me is some of those historical features as well. Can uh, Tom maybe this goes to you if you can explain the difference between the state parks and then some of these other public lands, because I know I've learned a lot from Becca. I just thought they all were. Yeah, and that's a common uh, mis- misconception. A lot of people tend to think of all of the DNR properties as state parks, which really drives the people in fish and wildlife and forestry crazy sometimes. <laughs> but uh, there's different landholding divisions within uh, uh, Department of Natural Resources that, that each have different prime missions, but yet there's a lot of overlap, too, in what they do, obviously. But you have the state state parks that we were talking about, uh, uh, which, uh, for the purpose that Ginger mentioned, and then Division of Forestry uh, was founded primarily for uh, to grow and harvest uh, timber, and, and then your fish and wildlife uh, d- the properties, which is primarily uh, in, aimed at hunting and fishing uh, uh, users. Uh, and then the Vision of Nature Preserves, that is really a more strictly preservation. The only really thing they have is, is uh, uh, the, uh, for public use is trails. Um, I'm not, I can't think of any exceptions to that, but their prime mission is really to preserve those rare plants and, and animals in Indiana. Uh, and then Outdoor Recreation uh, uh, Division operates several uh, facilities that don't really match any of the other missions. They're primarily for off-road vehicle use and that kind of thing. And then you have your you know, another regulatory department, Department of Natural Resources that a lot of people probably don't realize, and then support divisions uh, like engineering division, accounting, different uh, entities like that. So those different properties, there's a lot of overlap in what they do because um, forestry properties, for example, do have some recreational facilities too. They have campgrounds and uh, uh, Star Hollow Beach is part of their facilities, and so there's there's some of that too, but it's not as much as as parks. And so there's overlap, but yet there's a little bit of different mindset and a different mission in each uh, of those divisions. Okay, I think a common misconception is Lake Monroe. That's yeah. not technically a state park. Right. It used to be a separate division. Uh, at one time, there was a separate division of reservoir management, and then that was combined uh, as a cost-saving uh, measure back, um, I don't know, 20 years ago maybe, uh, 15 or 20 years ago. That was combined with state parks into one division. It was felt there was enough of an overlap or uh, 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 um, the missions were close enough that they could be better managed when one and have some cost savings. So. Um, but there is a little difference there in, in focus. It's, it's a little more on the recreation side of things in the reservoirs and more oriented, obviously, around the reservoirs themselves. So that's actually a okay. state recreation area, Yeah, right? yeah, that's state what recreation is what they're called. So with the 24, Becca mentioned 24 state parks, is that correct? Mm-hmm. So that's then, right. And there are 32 properties, so I know a little bit about math, so eight other mm-hmm. properties. So 
the state recreation area, that would be Paint Town, right? Well, and most of the reservoirs have multiple recreation okay. areas gotcha. around them. Okay. Uh, for example, Monroe Reservoir has Paint Town and Fairfax both. They're right. both part of and the same management, same property manager for both of them. So. Okay, gotcha. So, and then state forests are included in those or no? Well, that's a separate division yeah. then. Separate division. Uh, and they were founded actually, bef- when were they founded? I think around 19... 19- 12 or 10 or 12 somewhere in there a few years before state parks mm-hmm. uh and and so so that then and it was for a different purpose and that's why it was necessary to form the state park separately it was a different goal and mission so mm-hmm. i would like to add um while the state forests are used for timber they're actually according to the mission statement of the division of forestry for multiple uses so things mm-hmm. like recreation of course, timber production, but watershed protection and hunting and healthy fish and wildlife populations. Uh, but the main focus right now, especially since 2005, has been on timber products. Uh, like I said, there was, there's been a massive increase in logging. Um, so state forests around here would be Morgan Monroe, right? Mm-hmm, and, and Yellowwood. Yellowwood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most of the state forests are in the southern part of Indiana, and there's actually, they almost form like a corridor from the southeast part of the state to the middle of the state, ending with Morgan Monroe being the northernmost one. And there's a couple really small ones up north. Okay. So there's a lot of opportunities around the state, I think we can say, in terms of outdoor recreation air, things to be, you can do. Um, when we're talking about all these different missions, then how, how, is, how does that sort of work together in terms of funding and how these are managed? Well, each division has their own uh, budget within the Department of Natural Resources budget, and then there's, even within that, there's multiple budgets are very complicated things that even a former state employee can't always understand sometimes. But uh, so there's uh, separate uh, uh, budgets, and then uh, Fish and Wildlife Division gets a lot of uh, U.S. uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, funding for hunting and fishing licenses, things related to that. Uh, and then uh, parks has the, the user fees that uh, the other because parks state parks have gate fees and uh, most other facilities probably Starve Hollow and Deem Lake and Forestry do but I think that'd be the only exceptions in the other divisions so. Uh, and, and that money, I should say, on the state parks that they get from the gate fees stays with the state parks budget. Those become dedicated funds for use in state parks. So anybody who goes to a state park and pays that gate fee, they're helping to support the state parks. When I talked to Ginger about this yesterday, um, one of the things that was really important to Lieber, who is the founder, as we said, was he wanted the the park system to be supplemented by Hoosiers. He wanted it to be paid for by Hoosiers. So uh, Ginger was saying actually only 30% of the state parks budget comes from the state budget. Uh, the other 70% is from gate fees and things like that. So really, and that's that's something that's mostly unique to Indiana. A, a lot of other state park systems rely more heavily on their the legislature to give them money. So that means that our park system is not as reliant on asking the legislature to designate some funds. Devil's advocate, though. I mean, Tom, when you were talking about how, or I'm sorry, maybe you were, um, about how we needed to be doing more in terms of maintenance and upkeep. Tom, I think that was you. And upkeep mm-hmm. on these parks. Is that in part because we were we don't receive as much state funding as some other states? No. I, well, yes and no. Uh, there's two parts of it. Like most questions, I have two parts. But uh, I, I would agree with um, um, what uh, – uh, first of all, one thing I, I want to add on that with uh, the – you said by Hoosiers, there's an awful lot of that money that comes from out-of-state people that come in and use our state parks and pay those gate fees. So our state parks are a great – tourism thing and a great way to bring money into the state. So I want to make that point. Now, um, the she's referring to the operating budget on that. Then you got the maintenance and uh, construction budgets. And uh, that's uh, separate uh, funding from the state. And that's what when the, both uh, have issues right now. But uh, the construction funding has fallen off. Uh, I, uh, back in 2008, when the economy really turned sour, uh, and everybody was having to, to cut back. Uh, between 2008 and 2013, DNR had to re- revert over $100 million in state-approved budgets back to the legislature. A lot of that uh, it, it really hurt. There was a lot of deferred maintenance that result, resulted from that. Uh, there was uh, just a lot of work not done trying to get through that period. And, and you know, it was a rough period. So 
Uh, you, you kind of expect that. But then the funding has never really returned. Uh, it's come back a little bit, but the construction budget and maintenance budget is still only about half of what it used to be. Uh, and so you've, you've got that big hole you're in to begin with from having to revert funds and then never getting money back to help get you back. So there is a huge amount of deferred maintenance on parks properties. Now, however, I will say going uh, to the question of the gate fees, uh, there's a lot of states that don't have the gate fees. And my limited experience in visiting some of those parks that don't is that they're in worse shape than we are. Um, they are even getting less support. Uh, I just recently was at uh, over in uh, Illinois and Iowa at a couple of their state parks and uh, saw severe maintenance needs, uh, saw no park employees, uh, and, and saw almost no, or very few visitors. Uh, so I think it's reflected on that end, too. So I do think that uh, you do value something more when you pay some kind of a gate fee. The, the, the goal and the trick, I think, is to try to keep that to a, a, a level that it doesn't keep people from using it, but yet it lets people realize the value when they do use it. We're talking about Indiana State Parks uh, on Noon Edition today. The parks have reached 100 years old. And so if you want to join our conversation, you can tell us about your favorite park or you can ask questions about the park system in Indiana, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join a chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. I want to go back to Becca for a minute. So you've you've gone to 15 parks. Can you just rattle them off for us right right now? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> well, can you, can you give it then? Uh, okay, I didn't know if you could do that. So give me a range from like parks that you think were the most different, the most unique, like two different ends of the spectrum. Honestly, I think there are there are 24 different ends of the spectrum. I think each of mm-hmm. the 24 state parks has its own incredibly unique thing. And I think what amazes me the most is when I went to the Indiana Dunes State Park for the first time, which is up on the the shore of Lake Michigan. Um, and it, I mean, I it's like you're in Florida. It's it's incredible. It's this beautiful beach area, and then you go to some of these other places, and there's some deep woods hiking, um, and then the the most the, the newest state park is Prophetstown State Park, and this is it's actually one of the smallest as well. And it has this um, beautiful prairie area, and it's like one of the only prairies in Indiana, I think, and it's it's preserved there in the state park. So I think even just looking at the natural landscape, all of the parks have such drastically different things to experience. And it's been incredible just driving all over the state and seeing something new every place I go. Mm-hmm. So have you been, I assume you've been to the ones that are close by, or are you saving those for last? No, I did those first. Um, So actually, McCormick's Creek is one of the closest to us, and it was the first state park. It wasn't supposed to be. Uh, Richard Lieber wanted um, Turkey Run to be the first first state park, but there was some snafus with getting the property, actually managing the property. So... Uh, so, yeah, I've been to all the, the closest ones, and I've done different things at each one. I've done some hiking. I've done some kayaking. Um, on Sunday, I'm going to Pokagon to do the toboggan, um, and I would mm. encourage everyone to do that. I'm very excited about it. It's a it's a long refrigerated toboggan run, so that it doesn't have to be snowing for you to go, and it's open every weekend. Yeah, so Pokagon is, is – is it the – would you say it's the best known of the sort of winter parks in Indiana? Oh, the winter uh, parks, certainly, yeah. yeah. That's when they – I mean, it's a great park for the summer, too, but they're known for the winter activities because it's the only one in the state with a toboggan run like that of really an extremely popular facility. Mm-hmm. When I was I was looking up the ones that have the most visitors, mm-hmm. and all of them, with the exception of Brown County, are all sort of centered around the a body of water, all these public areas, which I thought was, was really interesting. And mm. I think is when if we're talking about possibly expanding the parks, then how might how might that inform those decisions in terms of what people are enjoying and like to go do? Well, I, I think it, it varies a little bit. If you look at a, a park, you're looking at you, – you remember what Ginger said, Ginger, Ginger Murphy said about the cultural resources and natural resources. You look for something unique in an area if you're going to put, do a new state park. Uh, for example, the newest one, Provincetown, that was unique because for several reasons. The prairie that there, which is basically most of that prairie that you're seeing is restored farmland. It was farmland for a long time. But there were some f- fantastic natural areas there, too, a, a very rare fen that was there. And the cultural resources there because that's where uh, the, uh, some battles were fought, fought between Native Americans and, and settlers uh, with uh, the, the prophet uh, and uh, uh, his nickname, and that's what, where the name of the park comes from. So there's a f- very um, many cultural resources there, too. 
and it's a very special place for Native Americans too. So, so you look for that, but now within the park there, in the development of that, Department of Natural Resources found a way to create a lake because some type of water feature is very important in each park. Uh, you do like to have that. So they're actually working on a, a, a deal with the um, – um, <clears throat> there's some areas there where they're mining gravel. And they're working out something, or worked out something with the company mining that gravel to where that when they're done with that land, they're going to not make it not look like an old quarry pit. You know, they're going to do some irregular um, things along the shore. And uh, in and there was part of the area that Department of Natural Resources owned. They're letting them mine. Uh, I say let, but it was part of an agreement then that they built a road. So they've actually got a new entrance road to Provincetown State Park now that goes around some of this uh, quarry. So they're working out uh, a partnership with this private entity to develop this lake and some additional facilities there. Uh, a, a great example of a, a public-private partnership that you hear about often uh, to benefit both the state and the private company. When was Prophetstown? When did that open? Mm. Uh, that's a great that's a question. Yeah. That's we'll, a good we'll find story. out. We'll, yeah. tell you after, we'll tell you after the break. Okay. Uh, we're, we're gonna, we've hit about half time, so we're going to take a short break. We're talking about state parks in Indiana uh, with three guests, Tom Homan, Sandy Messner, and Becca Costello. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmeyer from WFIU and WTIU, and also Becca Costello from WFIU and WTIU, who's actually a guest on our program today as we talk about Indiana State Parks. Our other two guests are Tom Homan, the president of the Indiana Parks Alliance, and Sandy Messner, the director of outreach for the Indiana Forest Alliance. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So the state parks have been uh, celebrated. There's been celebrations around the state parks this year as, as there have been uh, some centennial projects, including one that's happening today. But I want to play you a little clip that will talk a little bit about these projects have dedicated 11 Centennial Legacy Projects. These are bricks and mortar projects that will last for a long time for people to enjoy. Everything from the Rose Island Interpretive Trail at Charlestown State Park, which tells the story of an amusement park that was there at the turn of the, the century 100 years ago, to the Circle of Stones, which commemorates at Prophetstown the uh, gathering of the Native American tribes from 1808 to 1811. It's, it honors the, the message that they were trying to convey to a multi-use bike trail at Raccoon State Recreation Area, which is on Cecil M. Harden Lake. So activities that cross the boundaries of all the things people like to do in our state park systems. So those 11 legacy projects will be around for a long time. All right, Becca, did you, uh, did you do that interview with uh, Ginger Murphy yesterday? Yes, that's Ginger Murphy. She's the Director of Stewardship with Indiana State Parks, um, and she's actually at McCormick's Creek today. The, the final dedication of the um, legacy project is a shelter there at McCormick's Creek, which I think, as we said earlier, was the first state park. 
Mm-hmm. And that's uh, we we had hoped to have somebody from the state parks, but they're all there. They're but, all, they're busy today. Actually, Tom was <laughs> supposed to be there and graciously decided to uh, be on our show instead, and we really appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> right. So, Becca, did you see some of these legacy projects when you went around to? I've seen park? a couple. I mentioned earlier the the Rose Island one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, we've got if you check our website, we've got a, a great story about that. Um, that was the abandoned amusement park. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's just one example. They've also done several birthday celebrations. Um, one of the things, just lots of different projects, actually, uh, this weekend. They're sort of wrapping up the Centennial Hikes with some history programs. So um, we'll have a list of those on our website if you want to check one out. Mm-hmm. So moving forward to the next 100 years, how do we, maybe I'll pose this to all three of you, but how do we sustain the park system and this, the public lands in, in general? Can we start with you, Bob, and move down? Yeah. Well, that, 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 that's a great question. That uh, um, because I think there's two two parts of the answer. To that another two part answer. Um, we've got to take care of this deferred maintenance problem on the state parks. First of all, we have to take care of the properties we've got better. Uh, there's a lot of problems out there. A lot of problems that the average visitor would not see. Uh, a lot of problems with utilities and things like that because when they're short of money, a lot of what they do uh, um, put money on is what the public can see. Uh, it's just a natural tendency to want to do that. Uh, and there's a, uh, I'm a civil engineer myself, and so I am a little more oriented toward infrastructure and utilities and stuff. But And out talking to the managers, the problems have gotten worse even than when I was there. There's a lot of problems with sewers, water lines, things like that the public doesn't see, but yet it costs the properties money uh, to operate those. So there's a lot of deferred maintenance that needs to be done. But then, and another problem is things like invasive plants and stuff, protecting the natural areas themselves. Um, so there's some properties. Uh, are, some properties are in pretty good shape on that, but others have a lot of problems with invasive plants, and that that's going to take some effort too to get those under control. That's a problem that they didn't have 40 years ago. Uh, so it's something that takes more money now, and, and and manpower to do. But then there's another thing too for the next century. They need to look at the properties and see how to make them relevant to today's generation of, of kids. I'm a firm believer in the importance of nature, both for uh, people for people my age and for the younger generation coming up. But we need to make it relevant to them. The park that they may want to use 15, 20 years from now may be a little different in some ways than the park that I wanted to use. Uh, there's that common element, the natural area, but there's going to be things like, like Wi-Fi and stuff like that that I didn't care about, still don't care too much about, uh, but that they do. So you've got to bring it into the 21st century, find ways to make it relevant to the kids, uh, maybe some better ways of doing uh, some of the interpretive uh, work with the nature centers, displays, and less more interactive displays and, and less static displays, a lot of things that, that I don't know the answers to but challenge people to find those answers and make it relevant to that next generation. Want to chime in, Sandy? Sure. Well, I think that I want to echo and amplify uh, your discussion about funding because it's not just the state parks that are underfunded. It's it's DNR as a whole. And because of that underfunding, a lot of negative effects have happened throughout all of our public forests, such as the, the state forests. So one of the big things that we've seen is when there was a huge budget cut um, for the division of forestry, the logging increased. And that's obviously, I think, uh, a clear indicator that they're trying to make up the difference and they're trying to keep um, keep their jobs and keep the the systems in place that they have worked so hard to to put in place. And so, if we were to value and then properly fund our DNR, then things like logging in the state forest wouldn't be essential to the survival of the Division of Forestry. Um, I went to a recent DNR meeting. It was a public meeting. And I just was struck by, first of all, how passionate these people are and how much they love our forests. And second of all, how I think they are pressed into situations that are really unfortunate, where they're having to make decisions that nobody would want to make who loves our forest. Sandy, could you give us just a, a, a short education on, you know, logging, how much is sure. a good, how much is too much? Well, the state forests are, are, sorry, yeah, the state forests are 
as as we were discussing earlier, partially uh, set aside for logging, but not totally. The fact that they are so large and contiguous like they are makes them extremely valuable for animals that need wilderness corridors. Um, what we're seeing now, like I said, is a 400% increase in logging. Uh, this logging has been increased so radically that citizens living near these forests are really upset to see logging trucks go by every day. Um, a lot of the hiking trails and, and wilderness recreation that people engage in, if they want to go off trail, if they want to collect mushrooms, and a lot of people ride horses in these areas, uh, are noticing big changes in this area that they have treasured their whole lives in many cases. Uh, so what we're working to do right now is we're not saying don't log at all. Uh, we actually just want responsible logging. And, and actually before 2005, about 40% of the state forests were set aside from logging. Now we're looking at 5%. <laughs> so that is, in our minds, not sustainable. It looks like if we keep logging at the rate we're going through, we're going to log at all in 10 to 12 years, except for that 5%. Mm -hmm. So that's not adequate in, in our opinion. Right. I should say that's a show we do want to do. Uh -huh. Sometimes just focus <laughs> yeah. solely on logging with the Division of Forestry. But I, I do want to make one, one point about uh, state parks, too, that state parks uh, does not do any, there's no logging in state parks uh, normally. Now, there's a few exceptions to that in terms of if you have uh, some dangerous trees, uh, or I wouldn't call that logging, they're really cutting those down. But there's been a limited amount recently with the, the ash trees that were uh, decimated by the emerald ash borer. And uh, so <clears throat> they actually took, because there were so many uh, trees in public areas, they did a little bit of limited logging on the dead ash trees. But it, essentially, as far as policy, there is no logging in state parks themselves. And so, uh, again, and the only reason I mention that again is because this confusion that some people have uh, with the different properties and that you might see some limited log uh, cutting right now in a forest be or a state park because of the ash trees. Becca, when, when we're having this conversation about sustainability, I'm wondering when you've spoken to Ginger, how, how she sort of aims to strike this balance between sustainability and then also maybe expansion. Yeah, and when I talked to Ginger, she talked a little bit about, um, you know, there are sort of two ways to expand the state park system. One is to create a new state park, and the other is to add property onto right. the existing state parks. And the former is a much more difficult process. Um, you know, what she was saying is basically you need lots of acreage to establish a state park system because, you know, people are expecting things like a campground and hiking trails and, and horseback trails. And so it's it's a lot easier when property becomes available to tack that onto an existing infrastructure so that it's something that they can sort of develop that into what they already have. But also, I think this is a good point we've been talking about for the last few minutes is there's all these other properties. And so basically, if if some sort of natural property becomes available, that's sort of up for grabs for the entire DNR. And so then all of these departments have to make this have this conversation and make a decision about what's the best use of this property. So it may not go to the state parks. It may be more useful as mm -hmm. um, a nature preserve or in the state forest, uh, one of the state forests, which as Sandy was saying, there's a lot of things you can do in the state forest that you can't do in other you know, public lands. So um, it, it's definitely not something that's a quick process, but it's something I think that Ginger and, and other people at the DNR are definitely interested in. Um, just seeing the best way to expand our public lands in Indiana. And, and funding for land acquisition has gone down, too, in uh, recent years. Uh, there, uh, there was something called the Heritage Trust Fund uh, that, uh, and then uh, in Governor Daniels' administration, he created, if I'm, I hope I'm right on this, Bicentennial Trust Fund that was for land acquisition. And th those funds have basically, uh, uh, that, that initial monies that was put into that in the Daniels administration have, have run out now. But the there used to be an annual appropriation from the legislature, biannual, with, with the budget. Um, and that has gone way down in recent years. So uh, there's not as much money uh, available for land acquisition as there used to be. Of course, the funding from the environmental license plate goes for land acquisition, too. So if someone wants to support land acquisition, uh, uh, the, uh, buying an environmental license plate is a great way to do that. Uh, but right now, they're, they're, that's the bulk. But that money even has decreased a little bit because we have so many different types of, of license plates now. Uh, the specialty license plates. 
Yeah, we, we're going to go to a phone call. I do want to mention okay. you know, we've done programs here on the Sycamore Land Trust and some of the mm-hmm. work that they're doing mm-hmm. because they they have a, a role to play and have played a, a significant role in protecting some of these these uh, lands. In the yeah, and, and that money from the environmental license plate doesn't all go to DNR. Some of it goes to local land trusts like, like that or some for uh, bicycle trails even and a number of uh, natural and recreational areas around the state. All right, Mike's on the line. Mike? Hi. Um, I have a question um, and for context um, and I think it ties into what you asked about the next 100 years um, I want to get your guest response or reactions to the idea of um, state parks one and we've talked about this not being the end-all be-all for outdoor recreation in Indiana that they provide a very valuable service and we're fortunate to have that system but also there's other types of recreation that you talked about and that other properties are more appropriate for providing those types of recreation, specifically wilderness-type recreation, um, like in a wild, deep forest. And so I wanted to get your guest reactions to the idea of a wilderness system on state forest property as the next step for providing a type of recreation that's not absent in Indiana, but uh, the the supply doesn't meet the demand. Um, And because those are properties that are already owned by the DNR, so they're going to be acquired with new funds, and also they don't take as much money as state parks to maintain. So I'm going to get the, your guest response to that. Thank All you. right. Sandy, you want to start with that? Sure, yeah. So the state forests are, along with the Hoosier National, the only places uh, in the state that are for public wilderness recreation. And so what I'm really talking about is an estate park, you're not supposed to go off the trail and just pitch a tent anywhere. <laughs> you're not supposed to collect mushrooms. Um, no, you're allowed to collect mushrooms at Oh, park. really? Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. But you're not allowed to do a lot of wilderness recreation, which is what we're talking about. Um, undisturbed wilderness. Um, that's what the state forests give us. And that's why IFA is working really hard with a lot of different groups who are interested in preserving these areas. Um, one of the things that we're doing right now is we're working to get some legislation introduced this year to set some of our state forests aside. We're starting with 10%, which is, I think, a good place to start. But we also have a petition to our next governor, Holcomb, um, asking him to set aside 23% of our state forests. Uh, to let those return to old growth for the animals it needed and the, the people that use it. Um, and we're actually, we've collected over almost 25,000 signatures now, and we're going to have a big rally on the state house in February 20th um, where we're going to present those to the governor. So please come. Anybody who wants to support the kind of wilderness recreation that we're talking about can definitely make a difference. Can you give us just a little clear definition of wilderness recreation? Yeah, wilderness recreation, like I said, is is the ability to go off trail, the, the ability to pitch a tent anywhere, the sort of orienteering or um, there's some horseback riding in, in state parks, but a lot of it happens in uh, state forests. So the the idea that the that nature can be unmanaged that we can go into as pristine of a situation as we can and that needs to be protected in some way so how flexible are these public lands and the folks who manage them to what the public wants more of i mean how are we able to make changes or adapt to changing needs of what people want well if you get when you have a a, a state new state park for example uh, one of the first things that they, they do is to create a master plan for the park. And during that process, there's a lot of public input about what the public wants uh, and, and, and some professionals then in the area, too, looking for the best places to do that within the park. So you've got the map of the park, and you decide where your campgrounds are going to be, your areas that are more uh, – uh, have maybe some more rare plants or everything that need to be set aside as a dedicated nature preserve. Uh, and if there's going to be facilities like a, a, a pool or an inn or something where those would be. So you, you decide all those to where you have the less impact. And so you don't have this, this uh, well, it's kind of like urban planning, I guess, where you don't want to have the urban sprawl. You don't want to have that in the park, too. You want to have those uh, recreational areas in a controlled area so you're not messing up the rest of the park and, and protecting those areas. So that's, that's where your main public input comes uh, on, on a park 
is is in the development of that master plan. And then those facilities themselves just depends on funding and, and the balance of, of maintaining existing facilities or building new ones. And uh, so that becomes a more complicated, more of an internal process from there. And I, like we said earlier, I know Lake Monroe is a recreation area, but one of the things I remember reading in their new in the new master plan for that was how do we sort of update the opportunities available there to meet the baby boomer population aging. So I guess how 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 are we are we even able to do those things once we get a master plan sort of locked in place? I, I wish I wish we would. I would like for yeah. the Department of Natural Resources for, for State Parks Division even to have the ability to take a good look at their system and, and look at how do we meet these challenges of the next uh, 100 years. Unfortunately, they're trying to tread water and, and survive with the current, and that's where their their main emphasis is right now is trying to survive and patch things together and keep them keep them working. But I, I would love to see us take a good look at that next hundred years of how best to do it. We have about ten minutes to go in the program today. If you have any questions or comments about our state <laughs> properties, state parks, um, state forests, and national state recreation facilities, whatever, it, you can give us a call at eight one two eight five five. 0811 or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. So I was just curious if, you know, thinking about Indiana being 200 years old now, has there ever been a movement to that you're aware of to put a national park in the state of Indiana? And is, is there a logical place to have one if there – and do we even want one? Well, uh, again, a two-part answer. Uh, <laughs> maybe three. I think maybe three. Three, yes. a few yeah. questions in there. <laughs> there, there are some national. Uh, they're not called parks, but there's a Dunes National Lakeshore, for example. Now, back when uh, there, a lot of the national parks were being formed, uh, uh, there was talk about putting a national park up in the Dunes area, and then I believe it was World War II that interfered with that. One of those little details, uh, and so that got sidetracked. And but uh, the state then so that kind of put it on the back burner and then the state at some point in time I don't remember exactly when Dunes was uh, was formed uh, and maybe it was World War One come to think of it that interfered I think I had my wrong wrong World War there uh, the state came in and developed a state park there and a lot of the the, the best prime properties so I, I think we got the best property in the National Lakeshore there's there's great properties but but so we've got a fantastic facility at Indiana Dunes State Park and some great natural areas there. Um, so, so there is a, still then the, the national lakeshore that was formed later. So that uh, within the national park system, it's just not called a national park. There's a couple of other facilities in the uh, state, um, we have George an, Rogers Clark, maybe, oh, and okay. something else. But uh, so there is some here. Okay, and we have a national forest, of course. And there right. is actually um, this year some of Indiana's legislators um, in, at the in the U.S. Congress um, have signed on to an effort to turn the National Lakeshore into a national park. Um, I, I don't know what kind of support that's gotten nationally, uh, but there has been some talk of that even as recently as this year. Mm -hmm. And honestly, how would that process work in terms of handing over management of a state park to Well, you said the National Lakeshore into a national park. Which is, so the National Lakeshore is already part of the right, national okay, park right. system, so it wouldn't really be much of a transition. I think it's more of a semantic thing and probably a budgeting thing. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what that means as far as a practical matter. I, I would hope that we wouldn't turn over our state park to the national because, <laughs> quite frankly, we've got a real gem there, and I, we, we should be proud of it. And Oh, I guess I'll stay out of that okay. one. <laughs> All right. Well we'll, well, we'll invite you back in by asking, uh, what are the what are the what are, what are the um, what are the legislative priorities of the Indiana Parks Alliance and the uh, Indiana Forest Alliance? Give us one or two, anyway. Well, our first legislative priority is getting the uh, budgets uh, improved back to what they they were and to where we can start um, uh, meeting these uh, needs of the, of the deferred maintenance. Uh, and it's not just uh, deferred maintenance, too. I have an example. I've been doing my own tour of some of the parks this summer, trying to take advantage of that. And, and I was over at one of our state parks, not one of the big, one of the middle-sized state parks, I guess, and middle in terms of, uh, I won't mention which one, but, uh, but a major one. And I was wanting to go to the Nature Center. Well, there was only one naturalist. This was in the middle of the summer. Only one naturalist on staff, and that person was had to go to a meeting, so the Nature Center was closed. And I came back later, and she had another meeting. And I never did get to the Nature Center. You have a major state park property in the middle of the summer, one naturalist. Uh, now, a lot of them do have seasonal naturalists. This one didn't. 
Uh, so there's a shortage of just people to tell the story, to, to provide the services to the visitors. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier we actually have a bill that we're, uh, Senator Bassler is going to be bringing to committee that would set aside 10% of the state forest to let it return to old growth. Um, but the petition that I talked about earlier uh, goes to the governor who actually could change this overnight with the stroke of a pen. And you really need both the governor and the legislator, legislature to sort of do this together to ensure protection because the next governor that comes along could say, oh, I'm getting rid of that law or I'm getting rid of this, uh, this thing that I had previously, the previous person had decided we would do to protect the forest. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a two-pronged approach. Okay. Now, you know, Becky, you're, you're more of a journalist on this, but from your experiences, I mean, your 15 visits to state parks so far, I mean, can you just give us your observations about, about what you've seen? And, you know, they've talked a lot about maintenance issues. Maybe these are things that you wouldn't be aware of because you're not looking at all the infrastructure. But, you know, how, how, uh, what, what was just your overall impression? Yeah, I think as a visitor who who's never really been on the side of, you know, managing a state park, I don't notice those as much. But I think definitely what Tom was saying about, you know, not having as much access to like a nature center. Those are things I've noticed. And I feel like every time I go to a state park, there's a sign out front that says they're hiring and, you know, they're trying to they're trying to get more people in. Um, and Ginger talked a lot about um, the, their volunteer system there. They do have a lot of volunteers and I think that helps supplement it. But I think there's always a need for that. I think that can be one way that if people are interested in helping the park system, they can, um, you know, volunteer their time to, you know, sit in the nature center for a couple hours and just uh, let people look around. Um, Most of the state parks do have uh, local friends groups uh, dedicated to working with each individual state park. For example, the McCormick's Creek, the closest one here, there's friends in McCormick's Creek Park, and those are great opportunities for people to help a park close to them, uh, particularly if they, if they are, do live close to a state park, and there's a lot they can do to help. Mm-hmm. You mentioned invasive species earlier, and I just want to come back to that a bit because that seems like something that really is on a lot of people's minds, and it's something that, I don't know, have we figured out the best way to kind of handle it because we can't can't seem to get rid of them, but how do we manage it? And Sandy, maybe? Well, I want to talk about invasives in terms of logging because there's really clear evidence that when you, the more that you disturb an area, the more you log and things like that, the more you bring in invasive species. So just the very fact of human activity is going to bring in invasive species, especially big machinery and things like that. Yeah, there, uh, the Yeah, invasive species are going to be around. We can't get rid of them. You're right about that. What we have to do is try to control them as best we can and get rid of them in in the most natural areas and and you you prioritize. And certainly the state parks is a great example of something that should be prioritized to try to uh, uh, get rid of them. Another thing is to try to stop some of them at their source. There are efforts right now in the state to uh, declare a lot of the invasive plants come from the nursery trade. In all honesty, there are plants that we bring into our, our homes and gardens that are seem harmless at the time, and then they start spreading out into natural areas, and for various reasons, they have advantages over the uh, local plants, and so they, they cause problems. Uh, the latest example of that is the uh, the Bradford pear, um, and calorie pear is, is technically the parent plant, but the Bradford pear and the other cultivars of those that plant in certain parts of the state is becoming a huge invasive problem now. Uh, and, and it was brought in, in, intended to be harmless, but it's not in the end. So the, what there's attempt to do is to plants that have already uh, been determined to be invasive to stop them from being sold. Because right now we have nurseries in some cases selling plants that other people and other uh, properties are paying money to get rid of. <laughs> We're fighting ourselves. So, I mean, does the DNR have a have a strategy for these plants in state parks? Do we use herbicides? I mean, how how what are we doing to and make sure that we're able to preserve some of the natural forest and plants for the next generation? It's a difficult job. That, again, lack of money, uh, prioritizing money for you know fixing sewer lines or water lines or invasive plants, and so I think the state parks is putting more money into that now than what they did. But they're, they're 
they're they're low on the curve on that. They're just starting to really get into doing major efforts to get rid of some of the invasives. Uh, some of the nature preserves have uh, had access to some federal monies that they've done a lot more in that regard, particularly in the northwest part of the state uh, where they had some access to some federal uh, funds there. And and so they, they've done a lot more in that. And plus some of the things that they do, nature preserves, it does on uh, uh, a normal basis anyway with controlled burns and things like that in, in areas help control the, the invasive plants. So because nature preserves, is, that's their focus is protection of, of plants and the rare plants and everything. They've done more of that early on uh, than, than state parks has, but state parks are starting to get into it more. Okay, last, thir- last minute in the program. I want to give each of you the opportunity. It's holiday season. People might have some time off. Where would you send them around the state? Becca, let's start with you. Oh, I have so many. Um, I think you should come on Sunday with me to Pokagon and do the, and do the sled. But there's also um, on January 1st, several state parks are doing a first day hike. And it's just sort of a way for them to say, you know, start the year off by hiking in nature. So there are several of those. And that would be a great opportunity as well. Okay. Sandy, any place you want to recommend? Well, sure. From folks For folks in Bloomington, I would highly recommend visiting both Morgan Monroe State Forest, just north of here, and Yellowwood, just south of here. Beautiful, undisturbed sections of those trails really worth seeing okay tom 20 seconds my, my personal favorite is turkey run state park in the winter go down some of those canyons there and it's almost like a cathedral with the snow and the trees up above okay thank you very much we are out of time i want to thank our three guests tom homan uh, sandy messner and becca costello for um, sarah whitmeyer sophia salaby and mike pashkash i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.